0: Welcome to Fiction Forward
1: where our fiction is intersectional
0: and our ideas are forward. Yay, one take.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, um, so welcome to episode two of Fiction Forward. I'm going to go over really quickly. Uh, Our first episode was just an intro. I'm not going to go too much into it because it's like an hour-long episode. Feel free to listen to it. Basically, I'm Jackie. I'm Kelly. And uh, we talk about books and uh, gender and people of color and LGBT representation within them. And our basic goal is to just kind of educate people
0: about what good representation looks like in YA literature Kind of more examples of like media in general, but we focus a lot on young adult fiction novels.
1: And uh, we we like to uh, focus on ways the YA book community also interacts with like problematic things, which leads into what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys are on Twitter or active on Twitter, but if you've been active lately, you might have heard of something that is being referred to as the article. The article. <laughs> There's only one. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the article is actually called The Toxic Drama on Why Twitter. It was an article on Vulture. And we actually have the author of said article, uh, Kat Rosenfield, with us today. Hi there. So the article was posted uh last week. I don't remember what day. It was Monday. <laughs> Monday of last week. Um but basically if you're out of the loop, um the Toxic Drama on Way Twitter was an article uh that used the book The Black Witch as an example of call outs and drama on uh, sort of a corner of YA book Twitter and uh some people might be aware of that corner and some people might not but the article basically just explores a part of twitter that um that kind of needed to be explored and some people hailed it as like yes this needed to be talked about and other people kind of put it down and uh, had a lot of different reasons to uh to do so (laughs) on twitter
2: (laughs) so kat you did not read the book correct i did not um and that was an intentional choice on my part in order to stay unbiased in reporting about this, um, I felt that keeping my distance from the source material was probably going to be a better bet. and. Um the book itself is, you know, also 600 pages long, so you know, <laughs> um, that would have it would have been a lot to take on. But there really wasn't room in this piece for me to have an opinion about whether the book was good, and in fact, that was really tangential to what I wanted to write about, and you know, what what I pitched to Vulture, which was more of a 360 degree holistic view of what these controversies look like, how they happen, and what their impact is on authors, on readers, on the industry at large.
0: So kind of just using the Black Witch as an example to just kind of further those larger points about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it made a really interesting case study for a lot of reasons, um, especially just because of the intensity of the controversy and, and how long it lasted and how long they managed to sustain this, this level of outrage was really fascinating.
1: And uh, I know I've, I know you've been on a couple of other radio shows and podcasts, and probably gotten a lot of conversations on Twitter about this. So, um, what what is some of the
2: most out there criticism you've got so far? God, The most out there criticism is stuff that I think it's better to not, not dignify with a response. But um, it was really interesting. The the main criticism that I got was. For doing um, what is called citing sources which is you know linking to things that support the claims that I'm making you know just in order to establish that these are the facts you know this actually happened you know this was being said Um, so that's a standard thing you know in order to make an article well-rounded but in this case a lot of people took serious exception to it um, and that was definitely an interesting thing to see
0: why do you think people took exception to it I
2: think there are things about the framework for communicating with people in communities that are very focused on social justice, which includes YA Twitter, um, that make it kind of difficult to report a story um, just because the the rules of what you're allowed to do um, are very different and in some cases really at odds with doing a thorough and accurate job. Um, you know, just for example, you know, what, what I would call citing sources, which is, you know, something that you're supposed to do, uh, was referred to as hate linking. And, you know, obviously two people coming at that from very different perspectives. Um, so I think, you know, it's just a question of what framework are you using to look at things and, you know, what framework do you use to communicate with people?
0: Also for context, I have not read the book but Jackie has read the book (laughs) so we have kind of like a two-sided perspective on this where Jackie has more information about like the details of the book and I'm kind of in your camp too Kat where I'm just kind of going off of like what other people have said and like what you've explored in your article as well.
1: And I just want to bring up that this episode we're obviously going to be talking about the Black Witch like that was in the article. It's what a lot of people are talking about. But this podcast is really going to be just about the article and the discourse surrounding it and also why the topic has really become important and become worth talking about. So my point basically is that this episode is not going to be completely about the Black Witch. Yes. So Kat, did you have any experience or contact or anything with this sort of corner of YA Twitter before you started writing this article?
2: A little bit. Um, So everybody who's featured in the story, um, and that includes my anonymous sources as well as the people I quoted, um, was a stranger to me. And that's because the community as it is now um, is not one that I was really a part of. So uh, around the time that Publishing became very focused on, um, or rather, that why Twitter became really focused on diversity, um, I was becoming really focused on journalism. So as it was becoming the sort of fascinating beast that it currently is, I was really becoming much less involved in it. So um, at the time that I set out to write this piece, and I was interested in the controversy surrounding the Black Witch and started researching it, I recognized some of the the names of folks, you know, who were prominent voices in the controversy and in the community as people who a couple times in the past year had, you know, maybe taken exception to something that I said once or twice on my timeline and, you know, piled into my mentions and yelled at me. But that's um, not an unusual thing to have happen on Twitter, especially if you're a journalist and especially if you're a journalist writing about pop culture. So, um, yeah, you know, it was... A really interesting kind of like re getting to know you experience coming back and seeing how YA Twitter had changed since I was active there, which was probably last in maybe 2014 when I still had books to promote.
0: Could you elaborate on those changes? Like, or how do you think that corner of Twitter has evolved since you started?
2: Um, I mean, it's certainly, you know, We Need Diverse Books made a huge splash and I think really changed the tone for how books are discussed. Um, You know, engaging with books through the lens of social justice as a a form of literary criticism has become a thing that wasn't really happening so much when I was publishing in YA. So I feel like the... call out culture aspect wasn't prominent a few years ago or it was or it was less prominent but i can't really speak to that because to be honest i've never been super active on twitter because it is extremely overwhelming to me i struggle to keep up i don't know how people do it if you guys have tips <laughs>
1: oh no every time I post a tweet I'm like yes this tweet is great everyone will love it and then I refresh the page and it's like out of view completely and I'm like oh no one (laughs) saw that it's fine (laughs) I I post on Facebook pretty frequently
0: and about once every three or four months I'm like oh wait I have a Twitter I should go
1: (laughs) I I tagged you today on Twitter (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even see it (laughs) It's okay. Oh, I, I still it's, love you, Jackie. <laughs> I love you too. I uh, pretty much the only reason I use Twitter at this point is because uh, I took a class in college with a professor called Jeremy Lata, who was basically like Twitter is really important and you should use it because you're a journalist and it's an important tool. And I was like, this sounds terrible. And he was like, do it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only reason. We got a little bit off topic. It's okay. <laughs> So, jumping off the fact that that corner of Twitter has changed a lot since you were at least a little bit active on it, um, what parts was there any information that you came across while you were writing the piece that really surprised or upset or any insert emotion here? Um, were you surprised or upset
2: about any of it? I mean, you know, the whole thing was fascinating. It was it was really interesting to see how the community has changed, and you know, to see how the dynamics online allowed this controversy to take hold. It was such an interesting combination of things where. You had uh, one review that was being boosted by prominent voices and that really inflamed the passions of all of these people. And at the same time, you had an author um, who was a debut author who had very little online presence and had no existing fan base. And so it was really interesting to see how those two things worked together to have this controversy just turn into an unstoppable force. Um, As far as things that upset me. I mean, I was surprised and not in a good way to see how many adults in the community were essentially shaming teen readers for wanting to engage with this book after it had been called out for wanting to form their own opinions on it. Uh, You know, I'll be honest, it was distasteful to me to see that.
1: Yeah, so I know that uh, it was mentioned in the article, but for anyone who hasn't read it, Kat did mention that a lot of the drama, uh, so to speak, is kind of all adults at this point. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so weird to me being... I mean,
0: it's not weird that adults read young adult fiction to me, but I just think of this sphere as more of like, I don't know, not to, not to use like a weird label, but like, you know, a millennial... Type of like space. What you even know? is a millennial? <laughs> yeah, I
2: don't, um, <laughs> I don't know. No. Are, are you guys millennials? Do you count as millennials? Uh,
1: supposedly, we count as millennials, but we're on like the end. Like we are the last one.
2: Really? I think so. It, wait, yeah. you're the you're the youngest millennials. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's funny. I'm the oldest. <laughs> <laughs> we're a
1: spectrum. The best kind of spectrum. How millennials killed mm. spectrums. All right, sorry. <laughs> 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 uh,
0: <laughs> um, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on how adults should interact with these young adult spheres? Kat, like, do you think it's more that they should kind of step aside and let the younger generations kind of speak out about this? Do you think they should also be a presence by saying like, hey, look... These other generations aren't going to stand for this stuff too. Like, what are your thoughts on that?
2: It's such a multifaceted issue because in YA, you know, like it or not, adults are the ones writing the books, and you know, to say, well, like, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be on here talking about this seems that seems a little unfair to them. Um, at the same time, for a creator to be on Twitter, um, it, it creates a lot of issues surrounding know what does it mean for somebody who has created the work that you're engaging with you know something that you love or maybe you're a member of like a fandom of you know to be so accessible and in some cases it's great and in some cases it leads to people behaving absolutely atrociously and that's not just a YA thing I mean you see that happening everywhere um and then you know there is obviously in this case the question of how it's responsible or how adults should engage or draw lines when it comes to engaging with teen readers and I have mixed feelings about it because it's like if you're a teen on Twitter, then you have to have a certain capability of being there and being in that space um, and understanding that people who see your avatar aren't going to know that you're a teenager. And it's, it's, I think, unfair to expect adults on that site to you know, click through to every single profile to make sure that they're not interacting with somebody under 18. That sounds a little unsustainable to me. Um, So I guess this is sort of a long-winded way of saying that it it would probably be a better place if everybody endeavored to be polite and respectful to each other and to, you know, kind of give each other the benefit of the doubt, Um, especially because you are dealing with odd power dynamics and the whole creator-consumer relationship. But, yeah, you know, I I don't think that there are any hard and fast rules for it, and that's probably part of the problem.
1: I know there was a lot of, um, speaking of adults being on Twitter and not knowing how old everyone is, there was a lot of uh, talk when the article came out, people were, like, outraged because they were uh, accusing Kat of outing, like, teenagers, Mm -hmm. when in reality, like, the youngest person that was quoted or the youngest person whose tweet was used was 19, and it was just... It was honestly pretty comical sometimes but also like a little horrifying to see the the types of arguments that were used by people like someone said that she quoted a bunch of children like they Mm -hmm. used the word children (laughs) uh and other people were talking about like oh can you imagine writing a piece on diversity in ya and only interviewing white people which was also not true um so there were there was some stuff happening it's (laughs) it's fine um i'm not gonna talk too much about the kinds of weird out there like falsities that were mentioned because there were a few but i feel like like just check just do your research is my point (laughs) yeah just read the article
0: (laughs) that was a big point that i wanted to hit too and probably elaborate on a little later but it's so important just whatever cause your backing to just do your research first? Like, I can't say it enough. I guess to use another example, uh, in recent times with the events in Charlottesville, there were Twitter handles, you know, attempting to locate the, like, white nationalist protesters that had been at that rally and posting pictures of them and saying, like, I'm this person. Go tell my employer such and such. And there was one specific instance of a professor who was falsely framed as this person who was at this rally, and it's like, you know, 100% not the same person. And he's like, guys, I'm getting death threats now. Like, (laughs) so, you know, not having that base of research can definitely have real consequences.
1: And it's also I mean, just, I I know that we're going to be talking about call out culture and other kinds of stuff a little bit later. But It's just, it's becoming kind of terrifying, like, it's one thing to have people disagree with you on the internet, but it's another thing to have people, like, that disagree with you decide to, like, dox you and, like, do terrifying things and send death threats. Like, Mm -hmm. that's a whole nother thing. Um, So, I know that we're talking about a lot of negative things, but... What kind of positive feedback, Kat, have you gotten? Um, I know there's some people who weren't in the YA community that kind of sent messages like, oh, I didn't know this was happening. This is, like, really great. Thanks for sharing. But have there been any people in the YA community that have sent some good feedback?
2: Yeah. um, I mean, what's been interesting is that the response to this piece has been overwhelming. You know, nobody expected that it was going to blow up the way that it did. I really am astonished by it. Um, and the response has been overwhelmingly positive positive. in some cases horrified. Um, you know, the people who are outside of the community are like, wow, this is, this is terrifying. You know, this is, you know, this is freaking me out. But within the community, I've definitely gotten an enormous amount of feedback privately, uh, from people who are, you know, glad that it's out there, glad that we're talking about it, you know, think that it's sparked valuable conversations and who just don't want to say so in public because they would be dragged. Which is, you know, kind of speaks to what made the article interesting to write in the first place.
1: Yeah, and I know that a lot of the people that you talked to either refused to talk to you or were anonymous. Um, What were some of the, you don't have to go too in depth, uh, obviously, but what were some of the reasons for
2: that? I mean, there's a real sense of fear on the, on the part of everybody who, you know, insisted on anonymity, um, that the influencers in the community can basically ruin your life um, or at least ruin your career, you know, kind of tar you permanently as a racist. And that may or may not be true, but that perception is certainly out there. And that was behind uh, the requests for anonymity that I received from everybody on both sides. Um, you know, I talked to... A number of people who felt that the culture had become toxic, but I also talked to a couple of people who, who either had been a part of the campaign against the Black Witch or who felt that campaigns like it were a potentially good and productive thing, but even they didn't want to be named. What
0: about the other campaigns do you feel made them more productive as opposed to the kind of more call out culture on Twitter.
2: I spoke to an agent who felt that in general, the kind of the climate was in an ugly place, but potentially in a productive place. Um, He mentioned, um, I think during our chat, he mentioned the continent as something that he, you know, he was happy with the outcome. I may fudge this a little bit, but I believe what he said, and it was a great line was, um, I don't like the means, but I'm generally satisfied with the ends. You know, he, you know, he felt that there was potentially value to be had in keeping the tone of the discourse the way that it is. What was interesting about my conversation with him was that when we started getting into questions of, well, okay, you know, if we're going to say, if we're going to decide what gets published based on how offensive it is, um, then, you know, who is going to be responsible for adjudicating that? Who decides what is offensive? Because it's obviously a subjective thing, you know, who, who do we hand that power to? And I would have loved to hear, you know, a kind of a concrete answer to that, because I think it's an important question. Um, and unfortunately, he, you know, he basically said that he just, he just didn't know. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the potential problems with the way things are right now, you know, is that there is a lot of agitation in the direction of making that the standard by which books are published. You know, does it reflect the right values? And, you know, if it doesn't, and if it's offensive, can we stop it from getting published? but nobody really is able yet to articulate how you'd do that and, and have it be fair. hmm
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a fine line between writing, like, a fictional world that has issues in it, like, as in the point is that there are issues and they're talked about as issues, and a book that glorifies those societal issues and things like that. And for those who don't know, The Continent was a, a book that was published in, well, it's not published yet, because it got pushed back because of the controversy surrounding it. I haven't read it, and I haven't really been tuned into The Controversy, so if either of you know more about it,
2: <laughs> feel free. Oh, The Controversy Surrounding the Continent?
1: Yeah. Uh yes. Yeah, it was
2: It was pulled for edits, um, and, you know, that, I think... That was an interesting thing to watch unfold, and I, I don't think that I actually got to see it in real time. But the author uh, got on Twitter and started responding, and you know that it seemed—you know—in hindsight was sort of the turning point at which something was going to happen to the book. And uh, I believe that was a Harlequin title too. Um, and you know, when the Black Witch controversy came around, um, you know, a short time later. I did get the impression that they had kind of learned their lesson from the continent debacle and had realized that, you know, having the author responding wasn't going to be a productive or useful thing to do.
1: Yeah, and the interesting part is, um, I, I don't know how big the controversy on the continent really got because I didn't really pay much attention to it, but the the controversy surrounding the Black Witch, no matter how bad it got, the author never did respond nothing ever really came of that she stayed pretty quiet and uh, nothing happened to it it wasn't pulled for edits it wasn't delayed at all it published on time and it hit shelves and I think a lot of people were angry about that uh, because their main goal was to pull it from shelves but again this (laughs) I feel like this article is less about the black witch and more about Um, call-out culture in why Twitter and beyond why Twitter um, and how, in regards to diversity, it's become a little bit toxic, at least in some corners. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say that every conversation about diversity becomes toxic because it's just not true, but (laughs) um, Kat, would you say it's accurate that the article... um mostly just wanted to talk about call culture and this sort of corner.
2: Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to examine the whole front-to-back view of this controversy, um, you know, because it was such a fascinating case study. Uh, but one of the outcomes that was not anticipated is that it seems to have really struck at the heart of something much more universal about how we talk to each other online and especially on Twitter, and a lot of the feedback I've been getting is coming from people in other communities, um, you know, comics, tech, you know, romance uh, novelists, and and so on saying this is a real problem for us too. Um, You know, we are dealing with all of these same issues.
0: Do you think that represents a limitation with Twitter as a platform, or more just a specific issue To the culture, like only having 140 characters per tweet to kind of get your message out there. And you know, it's in text, and it's not face to face. Um, What do you think about that? Are
2: you suggesting that 140 characters is stripping the nuance out of our online conversations? The thought. Golly gee. Um, no I mean c- clearly that is something that's happening. Um, also the the remove of a screen and the relative anonymity of, of being on Twitter for most people uh, allows them to very thoroughly dehumanize whoever it is that they're shouting at. So I think that's you know where you get a dynamic where there's there's no real conversation happening. Um, I mean Twitter's entire platform is constructed so that people are constantly interrupting each other before they finish their thoughts. And, you know, when you have something like that going on, it's really a foregone conclusion that there's going to be a lot of friction and a lot of ugliness.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know there's um, a lot of people on Twitter have dealt with all sorts of harassment and death threats and all sorts of things. And it gets really ugly. Um, I I know a few people have deleted their twitter accounts um some of the people that are quoted in the article some of the people whose tweets are linked to also have just straight up deleted their twitters like the complete accounts really (laughs) so um well i don't know i don't know how twitter works when it deletes accounts but basically when you go to the page it's a ghost town like there are no tweets there and there's no there's nothing there anymore
2: oh interesting i didn't know that
1: yeah, um, there's a couple of people that that were linked to that their their stuff just doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, and I don't know if it has to do with that group of people that was outraged that you quoted public tweets, or if it if it's just out of fear. Um, but yeah, their their tweets
2: are gone. Yeah, that's I'm sorry to hear that. You know, it's I think unfortunately every piece um, of writing about an online sphere has this element to its life cycle where people read it and they get outraged about the outrage and then they go and do outrageous things.
1: Yeah, and I think um, I think when I was looking at those tweets, it was the day after the article was posted. So it I I'm not sure if they saw the article and thought to themselves, I'm going to avoid this completely and, and deleted everything, or if if something actually happened, um, it's kind of impossible to tell because there's nothing there. But either way, that kind of stops that conversation
0: from continuing further. Um, and just going back to what you had mentioned, Kat, about how a lot of times, or In some instances, these call-outs can come off as more dehumanizing rather than engaging. Can you just kind of elaborate on how they contribute to that dehumanization?
2: Um, I mean, I think you just have to look at the the tone people are taking with each other. It it was, you know, among other things, um, when the outrage was really at its peak, um, you know, people were accusing Lori Forrest of palling around with white supremacists um I saw somebody you know start bringing her parenting into it It, you know it gets personal um and in terms of call outs being unproductive you know obviously when you're speaking to somebody in that way you're I think less likely because of the way human nature works to persuade them to listen to you because they just feel very attacked
0: so so it's more of the tone kind of I don't know if the right word to use is, like, vicious, but just that kind of very, like, abrasive tone.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think vicious is not a uh, an a- inaccurate descriptor for some of what was going on. Um, you know, the other mm-hmm. thing is that, and, you know, this is something that, you know, people who write about this stuff talk about more eloquently than I do, but that, you know, one outraged person sees something and piles on the person who posted it not understanding that they are one of a hundred voices bearing this person in criticism, some of which is more measured and some of which is really not. Um, But that experience, you know, it feels very different to be the person getting dogpiled than it does to be one of the dogs. Yeah,
1: and I want to, I just want to move along a little bit um, forward to talking about the difference between call-out culture and calling attention to call-out culture on like a news outlet. So I know, Kelly, uh, you were interested in talking about call-out culture and that kind of stuff, so if you want to start that off. Um, Sure. I think one of the big things that I was thinking about
0: in handling this topic was being careful to kind of tread that line between giving productive suggestions for how to engage better with each other and then also policing minority reactions and emotions because I know for me like I have like two minority boxes checked off of like woman (laughs) and like bisexual but I am also overwhelmingly white (laughs) so I have that shielding me from like a lot of experiences that like I just won't know how they feel um so do you guys have any suggestions or just thoughts about like how we can make this more productive
1: I mean, I know that you mentioned a little bit just not policing people of color on like how to feel about things. And Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of important because I feel like sometimes white people every once in a while will just be like, you know what, this is how I feel about it. And there's no other way to feel like there's no other option. This is it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: My opinion is the authoritative opinion. (laughs) Yes.
1: Um, And I know that uh, one person did mention that they don't like it when valid criticism from marginalized people is classified as aggression. And I really appreciate that point being made, because there's a difference between someone actually being aggressive for, like, no apparent reason and a marginalized person coming forward and being like, hi, I am part of this marginalized group and this is like reflecting poorly on that group or it's harmful or insert complaint here. I think that a lot of people that don't understand the damage that things can do kind of dogpile on it and say like, no, you're just being aggressive because you're a minority and you're angry or something like that. Whereas if you just take the time to think about it from their perspective or to ask them for more detail, you'll kind of get a more 360 view of what's going on and why it might be harmful.
0: Yeah, so going along that, one of these ways that I feel the call-out culture on Twitter can have more productive conversations and avoid you know being labeled as aggressive not that it's like their job to like avoid being labeled you know I would be very clear with that um but it always helps any cause uh going back to what I was saying earlier to just do your research beforehand um so a lot of this like it's so easy to get caught up in the emotions of a movement and passion and just kind of hop on like a bandwagon of misinformation you know like especially if your followers on twitter are your friends and stuff and you know you think like oh if this makes my friend upset this probably makes me upset too and you know it probably makes you upset for like personal reasons but I know like a lot of times for me personally um like a, a cause like kind of gains more passion within myself if I see it like affecting my friends around me um like i just want to make this so clear like it's so important to just take that time to just pause and say like all right i might know what's going on this might all seem clear but let me just double and triple check to make sure that i have all the facts about the situation and then afterwards like however you know whatever reaction you feel is appropriate go ahead and do that but just please make sure you do your research first (laughs)
1: Yeah, and it can be especially easy on Twitter when you just hit the retweet button and uh, there you go. You're on the bandwagon.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and then going off of that as well, I feel that education is one of the most sustainable ways to drive out this type of ignorance that perpetuates, you know, oppression and just, like, harmful ideas and stereotypes about minorities, you know, that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast. And that's one of the reasons why I just like never stop talking about this because I know that I, what I know, not everyone else knows. So like, I want to be able to, to share that education, but like in order to do that, I have to do my research first. Um, And there's definitely things that I have learned or changed my mind about after doing my research You know, for just a little bit, you know, it only takes like five or 10 minutes of quick Googling just to like double and triple check, even though you are like sure that you know the facts about the situation, just to double and triple check to make sure that you are able to like accurately and
1: fully defend the position that you've espoused. And speaking of doing your research, Kat, um, how did you find the sources that you wanted to interview and and decide kind of what viewpoints to look for and where to look for them?
2: Uh, Well, you know, I really wanted to get um, perspectives across the board from a variety of people, Um, you know, people who had been involved in the campaign against the Black Witch, people who felt generally positive about campaigns like it, and then also, you know, people who were affected, personally or professionally by either the climate on why Twitter or by having their books targeted specifically Um, and then I also wanted to talk to industry folks about what effect this is actually having you know at the highest level if any so um, I put out a call on Twitter I, I did not struggle to find people who wanted to talk about how toxic the community was so you know I instead you know sort of was more targeted there and i I sought people on my own who i had seen you know experience something and for getting the the folks who were on the side that was against the black witch um as soon as i mentioned that i would you know guarantee anonymity for everybody and that you know nobody would ever know that you've talked to me um i got a number of people reaching out which was great so that was how I went about selecting people. It was really just a question of you know, making sure that I was getting as complete a view as possible, um, you know, as many perspectives as possible on how this kind of thing plays out and how people feel about it. And the only thing that I really wish that I had been able to do was convince um, you know, one of the people who was very prominently publicly involved to talk to me about it. I would have liked to, you know, to have a, a first-person perspective on that even though there was obviously quite a lot out there online. Um, you know, it, would have been, it would have been nice to you know, get some clarification on some things.
1: Yeah, and I do want to bring up just in general that the media is such a weird thing to say, but, but when you're involved in a story like this and you want sort of your take on it to be out in the world talking to a journalist is a good way to do that i feel like people said no people didn't want to be interviewed for this and then they went on twitter and complained that their point of view was not prominent enough in the piece and i just i just want to say that if you would like your opinion to be a part of a news article you should talk to the person writing the article That's all I wanna say on
2: that. (laughs) It's a good PSA. As a journalist, I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, it was was one of the first um, things that I saw after it was posted on Twitter was um, one person, I'm not gonna talk about who it was, but uh, they were basically saying like, yeah, I and these other people refused to talk to her and we were really angry that she even tried to talk to us. And then they went on these tweets about how they were so upset because their points of view were not in the article. (laughs) Like you had not tried to go out and find exact copies of them (laughs) to interview. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, that's not, that's not Cat's fault. Yeah, which, you know, like, obviously, if you're not comfortable talking to journalists, that's fine. Like, you're you're allowed to not want to talk to people. But it's just, Mm -hmm. if you, if you really want to be heard, it's a good idea to talk so probably one of the, the most coherent points talking about the article and, and the controversy surrounding it was basically saying that um, there's all of these, these controversies around white women writing people of color stories, and they get a lot of attention and, and all of that good stuff, but there's not enough attention on people of color writing their own stories that are being policed for that. Um and, and there's a few different different threads talking about um people of color who wrote a story that's just it's their life. Like they lived it, they know what they're writing about. Um but they were policed on how to write it and and told that they were doing it incorrectly and, and things like that. The same sort of rhetoric that's being told to white white writers who are writing people of color stories. So, um Kat, I know that you were talking on Twitter about kind of finding out more about that area because people were mentioning it is there anything that you found on that that was really interesting any threads that were really
2: prominent yeah um something actually that was was quite recent and um i would have been interested in trying to include it had it not you know come after my deadline um is uh what was her name um I don't remember. I don't remember the name of the author. and I don't remember the name of the book either, which is embarrassing. Uh, but she had written uh, fr- from her perspective as a woman of Romani descent, um, and she had written this story that was very much, you know, a personal, own voices story. And Kirkus reviewed it and called it out for not having a positive enough depiction of, you know, the Roma people. And you know, she was obviously and and expectedly and understandably infuriated Um, and I think that it's interesting and unfortunately somewhat predictable that you see this happening when the focus gets placed so much on the identity of the author and when we start trying to decide you know that a book's value is based entirely on how woke it is essentially um, you know, once that's your lens, you do run into problems and I think you it especially hits marginalized authors hard because they're subjected to these purity tests, you know, are you marginalized enough, are you enough of this identity to write this story? Um, or you know, you have them being pigeonholed where there's this expectation that because you are of X identity, then you're going to have to write a book about that because it's like, you will know, I guess your duty is, is sort of the idea. Um, none of that strikes me as being where people wanted to go. Um, So I think that it raises some questions about whether, you know, we need to start backing up and and judging books more on whether they're entertaining and whether they're beautifully written and not so much on whether they reflect the correct values Um, or at least implementing a, a kind of binary system where you're rating them, you know, maybe one is rated on, you know, on whether it's adequately diverse, you know, whether it's got the right message, um, but you're also talking on another scale about, is it well-crafted, is it entertaining, is it engaging?
0: Yeah, because solely reducing a book down to how woke it is, as you phrased it, I love that, Um, really misses all those nuances of like, who wrote it? Like, what were their motivations for writing it? Um, like in the case of the author of like, Romani descent, she was trying to tell her own story. Like in the case of the Black Witch, this like bigger goal of trying to show how harmful these things can be to a person. Like how like not okay, uh, you know, some of these like really prejudiced ideas can be for a person. It's just kind of like lost in the sauce, essentially, when it's just looked at through one perspective.
1: Yeah, and I just want to make a note that the Twitter thread that we're talking about was author Hilary Monaghan who wrote um, The Hollow Girl. And Kirkus did review it and they basically just... They said a lot of things, but they said that it was a a stereotype. And she has a whole um, very in-depth Twitter thread about it. I highly recommend looking at it because it's really interesting. So I think that the the idea of women of color being policed has brought up a lot of people asking why anyone is defending white women trying to tell marginalized stories when there's all of these women of color who have trouble even getting published in the first place. Um, I don't even know really how to answer that but I think that it's a really intense area to be in and it's a really good question that like why are we focusing all of our energy and our our attention on these white people telling other people's stories when we could talk about the Own Voices books that are people of color telling people of color stories. I don't know, Kat, if you ended up talking to anyone for the actual article that talked about that at all? Or was it really after it was published people that people brought people that up? Brought
2: that up? Um, it, it, was, it was very much after it was published. I mean, since the article was focused on the Black Witch, um, you know, as a case study of a controversy that got quite out of hand, um, I, I didn't really spend a whole lot of time looking at, um, except to you know, kind of name drop them, um, looking at other places where people were being policed. In the aftermath, I, you know, got I certainly got interested in, you know, reading more about that because I think it's an interesting, it's a related facet to this conversation, and I, I mean, as I said before, I think it's, uh, it raises interesting questions about is this the best way to accomplish the goal of improving diversity in publishing? Um, you know, is dragging people for doing it wrong necessarily accomplishing what people are setting out to do?
1: And I think that. Ultimately, the article did its job. It, it got people talking about this. It got people asking questions. It got people more involved. And, and I think that's really the point of the whole thing. So Definitely got it, people talking. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's certainly, you know, all I can hope for as a journalist is to write something that a lot of people are discussing now. And, um, you know, I have seen and heard that there are some valuable conversations happening. So it's great to hear that.
1: And on that positive note, I think Kat, unfortunately, has to leave us at this point. (laughs) But don't worry, because Kelly and I will keep talking. Awesome. It was a (laughs) pleasure, ladies. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was definitely a pleasure for us, too. And thank you so much for, for coming on and talking to us. So speaking of the question of whether we should be talking more about women of color and people of color in general and the books that they're writing and support them more than we're, I guess, defending or talking about um, white people writing other stories, um, there there was an article that the that Cat's article spawned uh, on the internet that, first of all, it was a little off topic. It wasn't really like Directly challenging anything that the article said, but it was inspired by it. And uh, basically, the point of that article, um, a white person was writing it, but she she wants everyone to know that people of color do not need us to write their stories. And her main point is that um, they need us to not tell other people's stories and profit off of it, which is exactly what a white writer writing people of color is doing. They're profiting off of someone else's story. Mm. And, um, and she says that we should not get credit for writing um, stories about people of color, etc. And instead that we should support people of color writers. So um, there's a few things that I kind of want to talk about here. So this is a great point, and I think that everyone should read it but I also am a little concerned that people will take it out of hand a little bit and say that like white people shouldn't be writing about minorities at all, which is like literature is really a space in which you should be exploring other countries and people and stories, and you should be you know doing that. And if you're gonna write a book, you're gonna profit off of it because that's your job like like the job is to sell the book and so <laughs> that's how capitalism works <laughs> unfortunately but <laughs> anyway um so so i do want to bring up that like wow this is a great idea and something that everyone should think about for real like i really do think that everyone should think about this and talk about it and read it but i do want to say that um it, <laughs> It is kind of weird to say, like, you shouldn't be writing about people of color and you shouldn't get credit for your work um, if you do. It it is. It's a little strange.
0: I have two very different thoughts about this, and I'm not sure where I fall on it yet, but that's why we're having a discussion. So my first initial thought about that is I agree because it kind of feels like the same thing as, you know, that like, policing of minority reactions that we talked about earlier where, you know, we don't get to say, you know, as white women, how other women of color or other people of color, just like any other like minority identity that we don't personally experience on a daily basis gets to react to, um, you know, the representations or misrepresentations or just any issue regarding that. Like we don't get to say,
1: about how other individuals get to react because it's not our own lived experience. It's important though to like listen when people talk about it. Like don't just don't just say like oh this this person of color is upset about this book. Like listen to what they have to say and try to figure out why they're upset. Like if there's a book for example, about like an Indian main character and an Indian person reads it and they say this book is terrible like what does this author even think they're doing this has nothing to do with India you know like think about why they're saying that what are the issues with this book that they have Mm -hmm. you know and and obviously you don't have to focus on one person maybe talk to multiple Indian people but don't dismiss it don't ignore it and definitely don't tell them that they're wrong
0: hmm Absolutely. 100%. I agree with that. And uh, going back to the policing of minority reactions, too. You know, it's kind of in that same vein with white authors writing about minority characters. It's like you don't have those lived experiences, so you can't... I guess a good example of this would be how Charles Bukowski... Good old Charles Bukowski... Writes his women characters as kind of, like, very sexual, harpy type of sirens. Like, you know, she was beautiful and deadly and glamorous, but she also tore my heart out and smoked a lot of cigarettes all the time. You know, just, like, ridiculous representations that it's like, I have literally never met a woman who is just that, like, one-sided of a character in my entire life. And I know a lot of women. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot to be said about a kind of, like, gap in knowledge or gap of experience that can, like, seriously warp the representation of minority characters. Um, But going to my second point, that's kind of, you know, the opposite of the first one, I feel like writing can also be used as a tool for understanding. So if you aren't immediately a part of these identities that you're writing about as, say, like, a white author or just, like, anyone else who doesn't have the same identity that they are writing about. It can be a way to, like, really step into their shoes and, like, exercise empathy to be able to understand, you know, how they're feeling, essentially. Um, Going back to my point about education earlier... I feel like that can also be a tool for education. I just feel like a lot of what we're kind of experiencing currently in in our country's climate, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I will get, it will be a very long tangent, but I will keep <laughs> this brief. <laughs> um, a lot of what's going on in our country, I feel, is historically empowered groups not willing to understand or empathize with the pain that they have caused minorities either through their actions or, like, institutions that they have supported. You know, it's a lot of, like, plugging your ears and being like, la, 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 like, that's not me. (laughs) You know, I didn't contribute to that. Like, that whole, like, old white people saying where it's like, I didn't own slaves, so I'm not (laughs) a part of this. It's like, yes, you are, but we can can go into that later. But I, I just feel like that's kind of what we're missing currently is that empathy, that ability for people to step into other people's shoes, especially the shoes of minorities who have been historically oppressed or threatened, and just kind of understand, like, how much that hurts, you know?
1: And it goes hand-in-hand with doing your research. I mean, a huge amount of writing, whether you're writing a... It does not matter what kind of main character you're writing. Whatever story you're writing, unless it's a biography should an autobiography actually should include a lot of research like unless you're literally writing about yourself you're going to need to go out of your way to do loads and loads of research and authors know that authors spend hours and hours and hours and hours doing all of this hardcore research and as with every art form there's going to be good and bad and there's going to be people who did really good intense research and there's going to be people who slacked or people who got fed lies or people who didn't feel that they had to do the research and it's important that people understand how important research is like you can't just write a book about a person of color and just use all of the stereotypes that you know without like researching them (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: that's not gonna work because as we have enumerated in our first pilot podcast and we'll be absolutely harping on this your understanding of other individuals in their lives can be severely warped by how they're represented in other media. So always good to do your research.
1: Yeah, and it's not, I mean, going off of that point, like, it's not just important that you get it right so that you're right or so that people who are part of that culture feel represented or so that people who are part of that culture don't call you out. The point is that you represent it factually, you represent it correctly to the best of your ability, because other people are going to read this and they're going to form opinions on the cultures represented based on what you wrote. Mm -hmm. Even though it's fiction, it has real-life
0: implications for how we understand how other people's identities are formed, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, And I want to take this kind of conversation we're having and use it to transition into a a little bit about representation and hashtag own voices which is about um, marginalized authors writing about their own communities and experiences um, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, so i just want to talk about how the onus isn't completely on the writer here like yes writers should be writing diverse and accurate worlds and peoples and characters but honestly a lot of the onus right now is on the publishing industry the publishing industry right now is extremely, extremely homogenous. And people are working to fix this, but as with everything that is homogenous, it takes time because no one's going to be like, yes, I will give up my job right now. So, <laughs> so, uh, so even if every white author in the world explicitly said hey everyone should support this person of color author which many white authors already do on twitter i mean maybe it's just because i surround myself generally with people who do that sort of thing but i see it on twitter all the time authors like supporting other own voices books and all that kind of stuff the onus though is still on the publishing industry to make contracts and get more books by people of color published in the first place because if they're not published then no one can support them <laughs> because it's it's not like oh my god how do I phrase this without being dumb
0: and white um because it's not like people of color aren't writing novels it's not like these just don't exist for uh, publishers to pick them up it's kind of like the the same argument in movies to use like another media example by saying like well you know we can't hire, like, an Asian actor to play, uh, you know, like, Mulan in the live-action movie because they're just, you know, there just aren't any Asian actors, you know? It's like, (laughs) yes, there are! Like,
1: (laughs) they are out there. Go find them. Like, don't be lazy. Kelly, Kelly, it's too hard to animate women's armor in video games. Don't you know? (laughs) Are out there,
0: these stories are out there, and the publishers are kind of like the floodgates or like the the last kind of like stand for these novels and and pieces of writing to get out to the public. And if the publishers aren't on board with supporting these authors, you know, in different minority identities and only picking up stories by kind of like white like very in heavy air quotes normative you know type of authors like authors whose voices have already been represented throughout the course of literary history then that's all we're going to see within the market you know like there has to something's you're right You're right, like, something has to change within the publishing side to kind of, like, allow those, like, floodgates to open, in a sense, to let, like, all of these differing and diverse stories come through.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's important right now just to mention that I want to remind everyone (laughs) that people of color or women or LGBT people being able to do the same thing as white, cissexual, straight, able-bodied people does not take away anything, any rights or privileges from any of those white, cis, straight, able-bodied people at all. Like, Like, I as a white person will always be able to find a publishing house that will publish my book, my hypothetical book, but if I was a person of color, it would be a lot harder to find a publishing house that would take that book, depending on, you know, all of, all of the variables involved. But still, in this hypothetical scenario, that would be true. So, like, having publishing be a little bit less homogenous doesn't take anything away from white authors. They'll still be able to find someone to publish their book. It's mm-hmm. just that it's, it's more of an even playing field.
0: Yeah, I think the point about the even playing field is incredibly important to touch on. Um, Just because, in case you aren't aware of the history of institutional oppression in (laughs) America, um, white people have historically, and still to this day presently, been given a very, very large leg up on life, basically. Because there, there are so many stories that are waiting to be told by very, very talented, talented authors that publishers will just glance over in favor of something that feels like, you know, in very large air quotes, again, like, comfortable
1: and, like, normative, you know? Yeah, and that goes back to our conversation about um, people of color being policed on how to write their own stories. Like you know, if we normalized all sorts of diverse stories and characters and authors, then maybe we wouldn't have to police every single uh, person of color story. Like, right now, every person of color writing a story is seen, they're kind of put on a pedestal and not in a good way a lot of times. Like, in a lot of ways, it kind of just sets them up to be criticized because they're one of the only people doing it.
0: Mm -hmm. It kind of makes them like the spokesperson for all, insert minority identity here, which, as we know from our previous conversations about representation and diversity, everyone's story is different. Everyone's identity is presented differently. So the way that one person in a certain category of identity might present themselves is going to be wildly different from how someone else presents themselves in the same category. Like, just taking the example for just taking the example of how gender is presented in women, you know, like I personally, like, sometimes I'll wear makeup. Sometimes I won't wear makeup, you know? Sometimes I'll wear dresses. Sometimes I like pants, you know? There are are girls who wear makeup and dresses all the time. There are girls who wear no makeup and pants all the time. Like, there are girls who wear no
1: makeup and wear pants all the time. <laughs> not no, no pants. <laughs> no pants ever, <laughs> Kelly. Those women exist, too. Exactly, and I support their right to not wear pants. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a joke. We really do support it. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're just <laughs> So regardless of whether
0: you are a pants-wearing woman or a no-pants-wearing woman... Um, your identity is going to be different, uh, and it's important that these, like, diverse sets of identities are also represented within YA fiction, and that can't happen if there's only a few authors of, of minority identities who are presenting their stories, but then kind of getting lost in the sea of other white authors, You know, with their representations of how people of color or other minority identities should look, um, it just doesn't contribute to, like, a holistic and complete nuanced view of these types of identities.
1: So in conclusion and in summary, please support Own Voices authors and notice when they get policed for writing their own stories and support them as much as you can yes <laughs> yes
0: good <laughs> yes
1: good um and if you read a book with um poc or marginalized characters written by uh, a white straight cis insert majority identity here um how how would we go about calling them out like how what what is appropriate there um I think
0: first of all just once again to really reiterate this point like whatever your reaction is like whatever emotion this calls up for you as someone in a minority identity your emotions are valid they are 100% valid and you should feel free to express whatever emotion that calls up for you but before you do that just please do your research that is the only thing that I can say um just because it's really hard to defend a point and people are going to want to lambast you about it people are going to want to pick apart like every part of this especially people who don't believe that like oppression exists and whatnot and like you know us as like white allies kind of exist to say like hey wait a second like you know i can educate as well and you know kind of take some of like the burden and the pain and the exhaustion of like trying to explain yourself and defend your humanity over and over again but in order to have effective conversations they need to be based on factual understandings of the situation
1: and i also want to clarify right now that we're really talking about um when you're planning on calling someone out publicly or like sending an angry letter or writing an angry review and posting it online, we're not talking about your private feelings or what you should be posting on Twitter, like on, you know, without like adding the author or like calling people out, you know, Mm -hmm. like you're allowed to have whatever feelings you want, you know, like if if this makes you feel a certain way and you want to post about it, like do it. You have the right to do that, you know, like we're not telling you (laughs) not to do anything. And you don't need our permission to do that either, obviously. (laughs) Obviously. I just want to clarify that the reason we're putting focus on, you know, doing your research and really, like, being knowledgeable about this isn't because uh, we're trying to put the onus on people of color to always be right. It's more that um, we want to make sure that if you're calling someone out publicly on Twitter on purpose, that you do your research and that you make sure that you're really talking about facts. Mm -hmm.
0: Because then you can end up in situations like we've seen with the Black Witch, where a lot of people just hop on that bandwagon of misinformation, as I said, Um, and just really missing, like, larger nuances of the book in general. Um, Because real people's lives are also impacted by this. Like, real authors' lives are impacted. Like, their works are impacted. And if after doing your research, you come to the conclusion that yes like they deserve to be called out like they deserve to be made aware of how problematic their work is do it you know but just trust your own opinion first before you trust other people's opinions
1: so i think that uh that we're probably gonna start wrapping up the episode but before we do that we're gonna we're gonna have some fun because these are some real serious topics, you guys. So right now we're gonna play two truths and a lie. Uh, for those of you who hate that game, I'm sorry, but you won't have to uh, you won't have to play. It'll just be us. <laughs> you can just watch me floundering with trying to figure out how to keep my
0: own story straight here. I'm trying to think of stuff that like you wouldn't know yes. immediately about.
2: <laughs>
1: The bad part about playing two truths and a lie on this show is that, uh, Kelly and I are actually best friends, so... (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I'll I'll think
0: of some obscure things from my childhood.
1: Great.
0: Okay. I changed, I changed one of my
1: (laughs) things. I'm still thinking of a fucking (laughs) lie. Oh my god. Okay, hang on. I can do this. It's fine. I can totally do this. I believe in you. Thank you. Just think of something you know that is true about you and make it the opposite. I know, right? Like, you'd think it would be really easy. (laughs) But you know a lot about me. Who are you? (laughs) I'm just gonna whistle police songs to you while you great perfect okay I I am ready I am prepared I'm not gonna say that it's the most interesting thing I've ever written in my life but I'm prepared (laughs) it's happening okay Jackie
0: it is your task to discern which one of these statements is a lie (laughs) one i started playing piano at age four two i have never broken a bone three as a child i used to eat ants
1: I can 100% imagine you eating ants, so I feel like that one's not a lie. God, God damn it. <laughs> okay, two um, left. I'm gonna say that you have broken a bone before. I'm so bad at lying, you got me. <laughs> no, I'd actually, like, it was because I know that you're just, like, a rowdy human being. <laughs> like, like I feel like you've broken... What bone have you broken It was my left arm, and I was in kindergarten,
0: and I was on those dumb, like, play school safety skates. Like, literally the most Kelly thing that could have happened to me. And the wheel got caught in between, like, the wheel of one skate got caught in between, like, the asphalt and the grass, and I just fell over, like, full weight on my arm. And I had a cast on it for a while, and this was in kindergarten. Perfect. If I did not mention that already.
1: (laughs) That's amazing.
0: You are a super sleuth.
1: I am such a super sleuth. (laughs) Super sloth. Now everyone knows that Kelly ate ants as a child. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, can we talk about that for a second? So,
0: (laughs) I would just be in the backyard as, like, a little toddler, and, like, my mom and my nana would be watching me, and I'd just, like, pick up at it, just, like... (laughs) Yeah, just, like, put it in my mouth, because I was, like, three, what do you want me to do? Not eat ants. And my mom, or my mom was like, hey, it's protein, it's fine, but my natto would freak out. She's like, oh my god, that's so gross, she ate an ant, like. <laughs> Alright, time to
1: see if I can discern your lies, Jackie. I wish I could, like, wear a mask for this, so that I didn't have to try and be convincing here wait i will just
0: minimize the screen and not look at your face
1: perfect okay number one i did not get my ears pierced until i was 18 years old thing number two i have never had invasive surgery thing number three i've been to a sex museum with my mom
0: I know that you went to a sex museum with your mom and aunt. Your <laughs> I know that's true. Damn it. <laughs> um, what about the other two invasive surgery? I think, hmm, I think the ear piercing thing is wrong. That is my final answer.
1: You are incorrect. <gasps> <gasps> um i did not get my ears pierced until i was 18 because i had like a crippling fear of needles i still do and uh like i didn't want anything piercing my like skin like it just really freaks me out um but i just decided around the age of 18 that like i needed to stop like (laughs) being ridiculous Because I, I like wanted to wear these earrings, okay, that I saw because they were cute and I was like, I'll never be able to wear those. That's so sad and then I was like, I'm being dumb So I, I went and got my ears pierced out of anger.
0: <laughs> Just like angrily walk into Claire's, it's like, Please pierce my
1: ears. <laughs> pretty much yeah and then i just had to sit there i brought my boyfriend at the time and i just like made him sit next to me and like distract me while they were doing it they were like so slow too they have to do that thing where they like mark at your ear with marker and then they have to like clean it and do all this other stuff and i was just sitting there with like the suspense building like just do it <laughs> screaming internally yes um yeah <laughs> But I have had invasive surgery, fun fact, um, because I had that, uh, uh fun fact, I had a breast reduction surgery, oh, and I was stop. under, yep, you knew that <laughs> I too, feel, you did. I feel, so stupid! <laughs> um, yeah, it is, like, an invasive thing, like, they open you all up and go right in there, and they have to, like, sew things to your chest wall, and it's, like, real, that's definitely a thing, but, um. But yeah, that was for anyone who doesn't uh understand why anyone would do that. Uh my chest was like way too large for the rest of my body and I was really tired of all of the like mental and emotional and physical tolls that it was taking and so I just decided that uh that I was going to get that surgery and luckily my parents supported me and everything. But basically, I got a breast reduction surgery and it was probably one of the best choices I've ever made in my life.
0: Nice. Yeah. So I feel- like <laughs> I feel so dumb for forgetting about that. Like my brain was like invasive surgery. Like that means you have, like, like your brain surgery or, or like, like yeah, your appendix
1: out or something. It was like oh, that doesn't count. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, Man. it's definitely
1: a thing. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's uh that's. I feel like I won that. I I should win a prize. You won the last like fun challenge too last week yep i i won i should keep winning this should be the, the trope on our episodes is that jackie wins everything
0: <laughs> jackie wins the podcast all
1: the time <laughs> yes <laughs> um so i hope you all enjoyed having a uh, cat on here for most of the episode um and i i was really happy that she could join us and just kind of talk about the article and like the process and everything and
0: just provide really excellent and nuanced insight about call-out culture on Twitter. So, for our next episode, we will be talking about what other book, of course, but The Black Witch. Ah, <laughs> <And>, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. And just getting more in-depth about these issues that were kind of exposed in these Twitter call-outs, weighing in on, like, what we think, and just just essentially doing our research with this book before we form a more nuanced opinion about it.
1: Indeed. So, Kelly and I are both going to read that, uh, that book, and we're going to formulate a lot of discussion points and opinions and all sorts of good stuff, and if you want to join in, feel free to tweet opinions at us um, at fiction_forward. forward. You can email us at fictionforward at You can go to our website, fictionistmag.com, and go to our contact page for more information. All sorts of stuff. We really want your opinions. We want you to be involved. And if you'd like to read the book and be more uh, you know, involved in our discussion about it, feel free to do that. And if there's just any comments or questions you had from this
0: episode or if you just want to send us pictures of dogs, go ahead and do that. Because we welcome all of that. Oh, yes. Especially the dogs. (laughs) Oh, yes.
1: For sure. Um, So, anyway, I hope that this has been a wonderful episode for all of you. It has been a wonderful episode for us. And, uh... We're gonna, we're gonna see you next time. See you in two weeks.
0: like that now i sound like a ring wraith <laughs> just like <laughs> Samwise in the background is just like
1: oh, school. I, I love the lord of the rings and i like realized yesterday i saw like a, a gift set of like lord of the rings and i just thought to myself everyone in this movie is white and i just like i, thought, like I looked at this gift set and i was like why are all of these people white and i had to I haven't seen it in a few years, and I just hadn't thought about it. (laughs) It's like, okay, orcs can exist, elves can exist, but,
0: like, you can't have a black hobbit. Like, (laughs) there are
1: no, like, people of color or, like,
0: ugh...
1: I love how there's, like, a whole human kingdom, too, and all of them are white, and it's just, it's just, like, one area of the world, and it's all humans, but they're only white humans. (laughs) Oh, man, it's fine. We could have a whole episode on Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Lord of the Whites. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Oh, my God. Uh, All right, let's stop recording, though. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna stop, too.
0: There are so many talented authors like just (laughs) Jackie Jackie racism makes me so angry like I just I can't articulate it sometimes you have to be articulate Kelly I know I can do the podcast I can do it.